Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Nick Winkleman. He just released a book called The Language of Coaching. We had a fantastic conversation, and we're just going to jump right into it. But first, a message from Dr. Kelly Sturette. For your listeners, we have created it's the readystate.com slash Kokoro Movement. We've got we've got something for you. You know, we have if you just want a two-week on-ramp crash course. Full access to everything. We'll give that to you for two weeks. Come come see how we're solving the problems. Take, steal what you like. You know, leave the rest behind. You know, keep speaking your own movement language. All right, my friends. Once again, there you have it. Please go take advantage of that free two-week offer from thereadystate.com. And we're just going to jump into this conversation with Nick Winkleman. Here we go. doing good uh where are you at right now well right now i'm in dublin ireland my man okay that makes a lot of sense because <laughs> i was like looking at the schedule of the times that you sent me and i'm like 1 30 in the morning what's going on <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no for sure for sure i've been getting that a lot but i don't know if you use calendly but it's a man it saved me i don't know how many hours of back and forth emails even when you're in the same time zone, it's hard enough, but right. two different time zones, man. So it saved me a ton of time. Yeah. I can't even imagine because that's been the biggest struggle with uh, just podcasting in general is just asking people to come on and then be like, okay, where are you? And we're in Arizona, so we don't have a time change. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so then we're just trying to figure it out. It's ridiculous. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm really interested to talk to you, man. Yeah, no, Jesse. No, absolutely. It's my, my pleasure. And you know, I lived, I lived in Phoenix for 10 years when yeah. I worked at Exos. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, man. That is the gym of my dreams. I've taken a couple courses there and I'm like, Oh my oh, God, yeah. I could just live in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, uh, we suffered for nothing. That's for dang sure. I mean, as a strength coach, especially coming to Ireland now, you know, the ru- rugby definitely doesn't have the money that the NFL and, and others don't, you know, others do. So looking back on what we had, definitely appreciate it. But funny enough, Mark Verstegen always said like early on in my career, he said, listen, if you work for me and, and we've done our job in supporting you and developing you, all you should need is, is a bit of space and your coaching voice and you yeah. can make people better. And, yeah. you know, it, it's ironic that his facilities then became as, as glorious as they are. But the one thing, if you walk through them all, one, they're, they're designed with great purpose. There isn't equipment thrown about. Everything has a place and everything's in it. But space was always the number one thing. And that's why our business is so difficult is that if you really in the movement profession, you need a lot of space, but how do you monetize that space? That's the difficult part with the overhead of running a business. And so that's why I've always gone back and forth, man, would I want to get into the bricks and mortar business in the future or not? Cause I've seen, you know, how difficult it's been for Verstegen. And that's why they had to develop things like the education courses that you've been on and partnering with Altus and other groups and, creating powered buys where they don't have to pay for the overhead, but are plugging in methodology in a hospital system. And so that 
they've been smart about it. That's for sure. So. Yeah. So that's been a big thing, especially with the coronavirus thing. Cause we run a small boutique gym here in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so it's uh, just thinking about trying to clean these bigger gyms and trying to consolidate all the people and see how many people you can have in there at one time and, yeah. and just keeping everything clean. It's just been ridiculous. And so, you know, your book came out kind of right at the right time because, um, you know, I started immediately once we had to close our gym, I started coaching a lot from home and I started coaching a lot of uh, kin stretch classes. And okay. so then your queuing becomes really important because you're trying to get everybody online to understand these complex movement patterns with yeah. just, you know, internal and external queuing. So that's like one of the parts that I just got to in your book and, you know, like reaching towards the wall behind you, squeezing that glute, like that stuff becomes really important because you can't do that tactile cueing anymore. And it's, uh, it's, and then you start thinking about, you know, once you kind of get used to the new normal during this coronavirus, do I need a brick and mortar? Because I'm teaching majority of my classes from my living room. And now I can go back to where most coaches start teaching in a park you know, because it's really nice up here in Flagstaff. Well, not right now. We're having a windstorm right now. That's just crazy. Yeah. But, um, you know, and then I'm a massage therapist as well. So then I started doing a lot of house calls because that's where people feel really comfortable is because they're in control of that environment and they feel a lot more comfortable there than coming to my office. So then I'm doing house calls instead of having come to my office and I'm like, man, that's a lot of overhead for a space that I'm not really using as much. But now you know, America's just like, oh, we're done with coronavirus. And we're just like, are we? But so yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. now we're kind of creeping back into the gym space. Yeah, for sure. And so and do you have other staff that work with you or you run a one person show? So it's just me and one other guy. And so um, I uh, left the CrossFit community just because my ideals didn't really align anymore once I started getting all this continuing education. And I left that last year and partnered up with a guy who's just been, you know, had a wide array of, of obsessions being like kettlebell sports, you know, um, power lifting. And then now we're really kind of a, of a holistic strength and conditioning gym. So we're really kind of focused on the rehabilitative space and we're really um, helping people move better, you know? So that's, it's funny because when I graduated massage school, I was like, Oh, I only want to work with athletes. That's it. That's all I want to do. And then now I'm like, Oh, there's so many more people that need me, you know, like right now I'm looking at, um, you know, can you step off of this six inch box under control? Because if you're, you know, 40, 50, 60, and you can't step off this box under control, then that means that you're like, literally falling down the stairs and it's just this fine line between if you make it down the stairs safely or not you know what i mean so that's like really important for me and uh the population that i'm working with is making sure that they spend more time on the ground so the ground's not a scary place when they're 60 years old and that's really what i'm working on now and again you know do do the activities that you practice translate into the activities that you live right and i think that's why they call them activities of daily living. And most certainly, I think, at the very least, maintaining function in right. those key areas is paramount to what we do, especially in the space you work in, for sure. 
Right. And so I don't know. Fascinating. We could talk about it all day. So I want to, <laughs> I want you to, uh, let's, let's give a background on who you are and, and where you started and how you kind of got to where you are now, because, you know, working in Dublin's pretty cool. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. I find, you know, the, I never get sick of conversations. I, I yeah. believe if anything, what the world needs now more than anything else is good conversations and people willing to engage in them. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. From a, from a background perspective, I, I have kind of the long, the medium, and the short. And I said, so I'm going to go with the short one today so we can get into the meat of it. Yeah. But you know, basically for me, academically, started out at Oregon State University, thought I might go down kind of the pre-med sports med route, but inevitably got into personal training and did a couple strength conditioning internships while I was at school. And I just, I fell in love with it. And probably the seed of that was working with my high school strength coach, Rudy, back in the day and seeing how good he was at developing people physically, but also mentally. I'm like, okay, this is what a great space to be in. It doesn't feel like work. They pay you for this. Okay. I'm, I'm all about getting people better while I'm trying to get myself better. And so inevitably, I find out about this guy named Mark Verstegen and his facility athletes performance in Tempe, Arizona. And I, I basically spent three of the four years in college preparing for an internship there. Lucky enough, in 2006, I got an internship. And long story short, I worked at, at Athletes Performance, now Exos, for 10 years. I took over the NFL Combine Development Program, which has now become pretty celebrated. In the, in the company's history and still they're very successful at it, as well as being one of the, let's say, early individuals to help platform their education. And it started off very early on just being mentorships in Phoenix. And by the time I had left, we had branched out into online, created the XPS in you know, 25 different countries, I think we were in by the time I had left. So really proud of, of the coach education as much as I am the strength and conditioning. And then I had an opportunity to come over to, to Dublin, Ireland and work with Irish rugby. So now I'm the head of athletic performance and science, which basically means you know, I get to oversee strength conditioning across national and our four professional teams. And at the end of the day, I just get to work with some, some pretty amazing people across a diversity of teams. And kind of the way I describe it to people, because like, hold on, you work across four teams and you know, rugby's different in that we have what's called a centralized union. So these four teams that are professional, like an NFL team, they compete against each other, but yet it's players from those four teams that make up our national team. And so I try to describe it as we are a community of competitors. And so I have the, the luxury and the fortunate uh, ability to work across all those entities. And somewhere in that process, I, I grabbed myself a PhD in motor skill learning, because ultimately, as I'm sure we'll get into my call it my major interest within the overall sphere of the movement profession is communication. I just love studying and understanding how we, through words, impact others, and notably how our words impact the way others move, which obviously is central to what we do day in, day out. And so that, uh, I'm sure, inevitably gets us into this idea around the language of coaching. Yeah, so that's, uh, it's fascinating because you really we're able to articulate a lot of that in your book very, very well. And so it's, it's interesting because, you know, coming from, 
So I started coaching MMA and jujitsu. And cool. so that's where I started to understand that everybody learns different and everybody hears different and everybody experiences different. So instead of just standing there being like, God, why isn't this person doing this this way? You have to sit there and be like, well, what do I need to say to this person to get the same result as the person next to them? Because, you know, when it comes to boxing, and I've used this analogy a lot, like it's like just trying to coach a jab should seem really simple. You just take your hand from your face, stick your arm straight out and bring it back to your face as fast as you can. But then people are like, what? And you're like, what do you mean what? And so then you have to figure out 30 different ways to describe that to 30 different people because everybody understands that language differently. And then once you get into um, CrossFit, that was a really good transition for me because you know, figuring out how to coach people when they're training is different than figuring out how to coach people when they're fighting. Because then that's like, what do they need to understand while they're under duress? You know what I mean? Because that's a different thing, right? So you can't just be shouting out these complicated instructions while they're trying not to get choked. You know what I mean? So then it translates to CrossFit very well where, you know, okay, so this person needs to make this slight adjustment in their squat, what can I say to them that's not complicated, that's like a one-word cue that, that will give them that understanding that they need to improve their squat in the middle of this workout? Do you feel, though, that because you had that experience with MMA, it, it brightened the fact that, hold on, I can't say too many things. Right. Because ultimately, it's a bit of, it was not a bit of, it's fight or flight quite literally in there. Yeah. From a fight or flight perspective, my, my attention has got to be on the thing trying to harm me. Yeah. And so almost out of that experience, you were forced from necessity to say, listen, I can't give a lot of cues. You said it yourself. I got to give one. Do you think that actually helped you when you went into coaching CrossFit or any strength and conditioning type activity, which let's be honest, People without that experience, well, sometimes they go into that environment and inadvertently they're trying to show everyone what they know and they're communicating head, shoulders, knees, and toes and all the biomechanics. So do you feel it helped you having that experience with MMA before you got into, let's say, CrossFit training? A hundred percent. And so one of the guys that, um, one of the main guys that I coached during MMA, once our fight team disbanded, he moved on to CrossFit. And so I was watching him try to snatch a barbell for the first time and watching one of the CrossFit coaches just give him cue after cue after cue after cue after cue. And then I just walked up and said, Hey, do this. And he just did it right away because he was one of my, like I said, main fighters. And so he knows my voice and he understands what I'm trying to tell him and I know how to coach him. And so I could see what was going on and the one cue that he needed in order to get that snatch because the snatch is just an incredibly complex movement and you can sit there and pick apart people all day long. But I think one other thing that you really articulated very well in your book was you're not going to be perfect at the snatch the first time you try it. It's a learning process over years and years and years. So, and that's one thing that I tried to impart on the CrossFit gym before I left is that you are making incremental progress over a long period of time. And so you need to be patient and you need to teach them to be patient as well. 
can't you can't speed up the learning process by teaching more yeah and you know i think i think john wooden said it best you have not taught until they have learned and so i think a a healthy thought is if, if teaching is the transference of information in its varied forms that i should be teaching at the rate that they can learn and as simple as that sounds we know oftentimes the simplest things are the most difficult to do but i think the spirit of let's say the point we're discussing right now is that the amount of information matters a lot and, and that's why we have concepts like paralysis by analysis or choking under pressure or overthinking or trying to find flow these are all synonyms for trying to think less and think better about what you are focusing on and so ultimately that's in your story what i hear and what very early on in my book i talk about as you know the the, the one one rep one focus or now more conventionally if i was to write a second edition i'd call it the one big thing you know are you getting to that one big thing because when I'm in the midst of a fight and I'm throwing that punch that happens in a fraction of a second, or I'm initiating the pull on that snatch and that total movement happens in a fraction of a second, there is not room for more than one thought. There's not room for more than one driver in the car. And, but too often behaviorally, we as coaches, we inadvertently screw that up by giving our athletes way too much information, more information than they need. So I'm curious, with the athlete you were referencing there, the MMA guy who came in and did the CrossFit, what was the cue you used to clean everything up on the snatch? So I told him not to shoot his hips because he was starting to pull with his hips instead of squeezing the bar off the ground, right? Mm -hmm. So I just said, this is what you're doing with your hips. Don't do that. Just okay. stand up. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Just stand yeah. Right. And sometimes that's it. Right. It was, you know, before I got on here, I was just thinking about a, a, a post and that was sometimes it's not about putting more information in the mind. It's about taking information out. Yeah. And it's almost like what you observed there was the, the, the cupeth overflow. And right. you just try to say, we don't need that much fluid in there. Just stand up quickly, stand up quickly. And so I love that. Right. And so, you know, he, just to give a little background on him. So we were training for his cage fight and usually it's like a three month training camp, mm -hmm. but this, um, you know, this isn't a professional organization. It's an amateur organization. Mm -hmm. And so then the fight got pushed back a month and then it got pushed back another month. And then, so from that point on, we were training for like five and a half months together. And so we got to the point where I could, just yell at him while he's sparring hey pause before you hook and then he would you know throw that one two and then pause and then that hook would land because they were able to time his one two three his his uh jab straight hook combo and so when i say pause then they pause and then wonder and then take their hand down and then that hook lands you know what i mean so it was just like it was really interesting towards the end there it was like playing a video game and so when he's sparring and I'm just like shouting out these cues. He would do exactly what I was saying because it was really simple and it was really in the moment. And he could uh, finally calm down enough to where he could understand me. And so that's the other interesting part about CrossFit is you have to, you have to 
coach based on the experience of the athlete, you know, cause when athletes come in and it's their first like three months, they just want to get after it. They just want to go as hard as they can. You know, there's no pauses. There's no nothing. They're just like, yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go. And then more experienced athletes are into pacing. They're into understanding that if they burn out at the very beginning, then they won't have anything left at the end. So then you can start coaching them a lot more. Whereas like inexperienced athletes, you have to coach them more at the beginning and then more at the end. And it's just, it's a, it's a constant, um, learning process. And that's what I think makes my job really fun is because, um, and where I see a lot of other coaches get burned out is that they get really frustrated that they're not seeing immediate spectacular results in their athletes. And I'm just in it for the long haul. Let's see what this person can do today and then see if we can improve them tomorrow. And then starting to um, get familiar with those athletes and cue as you go, Hey, I, I remember the last time you did these, this is what you were doing. Let's try this today. Okay. Got it. You know what I mean? I usually refer to that as kind of red thread queuing and yeah. that you're always saying, Hey, here's, here's where we got to in the last session. Here's, let's say the, the thought, the cue, the focus that seemed to help us get there. And sometimes I don't say, I say, well, well do you recall in the last session, what worked for you? And I think getting them to own the change and own the thought, because ultimately they're the one walking the path, not us can be very healthy and then say, okay, we either might stick with that. We might refresh it. We might retire the queue altogether if it right. didn't seem to be working for them, but it's this constant evolution in the same way, you know, we, we progress our training and we periodize our training. There's an element of that with our communication, as long as we're paying attention to it, you know, too often coaches are just inadvertently coaching what they see. You know, so if, if on one rep, it's one error, they're coaching that error. Let's say it's the, the, the hip position during a the clean. Then on the next rep, it's the knee position. On the next rep, it's the shoulder position versus stepping back and saying, okay, I've actually watched six repetitions. Of course, there's going to be variation from one to the next. But what's the core problem? Or put differently, what's the core opportunity from a movement perspective? And then start to work with the athlete as, as you did with yours and say, okay, this is the problem here. And that's your expertise and you're supposed to be able to identify that. However, you identify the problem. I think it's important to collaborate with the athlete on the solution. Now, early on, if they're a novice, like you did with your friend, you might just tell them to stand up. But as they start to accumulate their own knowledge about the movement, you might say to them, hey, you're still leaving your hips behind the bar. What do you think you can focus on to get that snap and that finish in the second pull? and get them to start to think for themselves and be a part of that cue creation, which is just another way to say focus creation. And ultimately it's their focus that drives the movement. So it makes sense to me that they should be part of owning it. Yeah, absolutely. And so <clears throat> the other thing that I try to do is figure out other movements that translate to the movement that I'm trying to coach using a clean as an example, right? So basically a clean is just jumping and landing. So I get them to warm up with box jumps so that they can figure out that explosive open and close of the hip. And then, Oh, that's what it's supposed to feel like when I'm doing power cleans. Okay. Got it. You know what I mean? And so that's, that was really helpful for me uh, towards the end too. But I, you know, don't, I don't coach a lot of those complex movement patterns anymore because I'm just really going back to the basics of human movement because the majority of the time that's what people need. Yeah. 
Jesse, if I can put a flag on what you just said there, because actually that the way you articulated that example is exactly how I do it. Uh, and that is, you know, you know that your your main movement for the day, or at least for block one, is this Olympic lift. Right. But you know that the person struggles with extension or finishing their second pull, that kind of explosive nature. And so what you've just done there, I love this, is you say, okay, well, what's another movement that by its very nature is, is similar? but might highlight speed and explosiveness. Mm -hmm. yeah, awesome. Any kind of a vertical jump, a, a box jump, a counter movement, non-counter movement, whatever it is. And the cues there are really focusing on that speed off the ground or the speed of finish or get away from the ground, whatever it might be. And because there's not a bar in their hand, by its very nature, it's a simpler movement. Right. And they can probably gain mastery sooner. And so now you go from there and you're in the Olympic lift. And you're referencing back, okay, that second pull, as you really try to accelerate that bar, that's just like you jumping. That should be right. the exact same feeling. And I call that, and I think I, I reference it explicitly in the book. I don't know if you've gotten to that section yet, but I call those physical analogies mm -hmm. where you literally take your, your primers or your prep movements, which don't get me wrong, they, they're physically valuable because they're a warm-up and they start to groove and refine the motor pattern and say what you will, that's all beneficial but they also serve and ease the coaching because now you have a physical movement that's really similar, but it highlights a certain feature of the movement, in this case, extension, that they can't quite get in the Olympic lift. Right. And so by, by way of comparison, it says, okay, so that's what it should feel like. And it's as simple as copying and pasting it from a mental perspective and move as if I'm doing the vertical jump. Right. And so, I just wanted to highlight that, Jesse, because I think that's actually, I think many coaches do it, yeah. but they probably do it more by chance than choice. Right. And I think that is a, it's a brilliant use of your preparatory drills and to know that beyond the physical benefit, that's why you're using them. Right. And so the reason why I use the box jump as an example is to accentuate the closing of the hip, because a lot of people that are new to the clean, especially the power clean, they tend to leave the hip open and then lean back more with their upper torso in order to receive that barbell. And so that's why they're missing it is because they're not committing to the close. And so once you get them transferring from a box jump, so like say we're doing a one rep max day and they're having problems committing to the closing of the hip, you have them transfer back and forth from a box jump to that power clean again. And Brilliant. so, and it, yeah. And so that's, that's, uh, <clears throat> you know, so that's, um, when I started to formulate the why, right? So there's that, there's that, uh, Simon Sinek book, start with your why. And so I translated that into coaching. So why are you doing that? And so if you can't explain to me why this athlete's doing that movement, then I don't think that they should be doing that movement, you know? So if you're just doing it because it's hard, then I don't think that that's so we're trying to improve their athleticism. We're not trying to, and I don't really know how to articulate that. We're not trying to just kind of uh, push this athlete through this incredibly difficult task. Our training should be able to help them 
in their everyday life with accomplishing those incredibly difficult tasks. I don't think that your training should be the incredibly difficult task all the time. I feel like, you know, kind of going with the uh, uh, Pavel Satsulin where he's just talking about, you know, you should always have reps in the tank. You should always be able to do a workout and then perform if you need to, you know? So like if your workout leaves you so sore to where you can't step off of a curb, that's not beneficial. You know what I mean? Like you need to be like, so, and as you were saying earlier, sorry, I'm kind of just formulating this thought in my head out loud. Uh, So, so you have these, you've been training professional athletes for 10 years and you've been training them for a high level of competition. And so if their workouts and their training completely destroy them, then they can't perform in that high level competition. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, with these normal everyday people, like if you're walking across the street and you can't jump out of the way of a car that's veering towards you because you did too many squats the day before, then what are we doing? You know what I mean? What I hear in all of that is it's not just about doing more. It's about doing better and then inevitably doing more better. Right. (laughs) You know, too often it's just about we, we try to chase the more part and it should be well let's let's chase better and then we can start to add more as as i've earned it no 100 percent. yeah and so just making the training more effective is my whole point like i said walking down the stairs yeah and so like you should be able to control yourself as you're walking down the stairs because sometimes you're not paying attention you get a text message whatever and if you're able to control your entire movement as you're stepping off that step then you're a lot safer over the long term than if you're just like (laughs) like just kind of falling down the stairs is what i keep saying to people it's just crazy well as we said before we got on the you know the podcast it's what you now are focusing on is activities of daily living and Mm -hmm. that's a big thing that i challenge the, the coaches and the trainers that that take my courses or listen to what I have to share. And and that is for me, the definition of a coach is one that helps their client patient or athlete learn. And the definition definition of learning for me is very simply put, does the practice and training result in an improved ability that doesn't require the coach's presence? Yeah. If they require you, if they require you and your reminders to effectively squat down when they're playing with their kids. If they require you and your reminders to explosively jump, right, and land correctly when they're playing weekend pickup ball, you know, I'm not saying that obviously all of it should fall back on the coach, but most certainly I think that's the North Star that should be guiding us. And so for me, uh, another key topic is what is driving your coaching behavior? When you ask a lot of coaches that, they'll, they'll uh, initially lean into answer and then they think well what is driving my behavior why do you cue the way you do why do you design your programs the way you do many coaches can give you a programming philosophy well i want good movers and i want effective strength of body weight ratio good mobility beautiful okay give me your philosophy on how you're going to achieve that how you're going to test that how you're going to know it's working and that it's transferring to what matters sure i can measure your squat and your jump height But if I'm a rugby player, well, my game is more than squat and jump height. So how do I know I'm making uh, an impact? If I'm working with general population, 
You know, whether it's a mother or a father who wants more energy and better movement with their kids, how am I guiding them to achieve that? And so, you know, ultimately that's what I'm curious about is how we as coaches are a variable in the learning process in the same way that the load and the exercise selection is a variable. And ultimately as coaches, I think we're one of the strongest variables in determining whether or not what we are teaching inevitably is owned by the person that we are teaching it to. And so if they're not owning it, back to the quote, I probably already said it, but I wouldn't. If, I'm not, if they have not learned, I have not taught. For me, learning is them owning. And so that's the North Star I think every coach needs to be driven towards. Right. And so, you know, I was listening to um, a podcast with uh, Mark Vestergen. Is that right? The the Verstegen. yeah Verstegen. yep that's right and he was he was talking to dr kelly Sturette about how we need to move more towards movement literacy and so that is my coaching philosophy what so when somebody comes in hey i'm in pain cool what are you doing well i'm a runner okay so now we get to we've eliminated what you do now we need to start plugging in what you're not doing that's causing your pain and so you know, because, uh, you know, running is primarily a sagittal plane movement. <clears throat> and so where they start to experience pain is when they have these, excuse me for a second, <clears throat> excuse me. So when they start to feel pain is when they're, um, they have a, a movement deficiency that starts to cause muscle dysfunctions because they're starting to compensate by moving into movement patterns that they're not normally used to moving in. And so once I make them familiar with those movement patterns then their pain symptoms start to go away. And so that's just, that's where, um, that's where my coaching philosophy is. What are you not doing and how do we plug that in there? And what's your ultimate goal? Like, do you want to get faster at running because that's a different thing? Or are you just ready to, or do you just want to run without pain? Cause I can help you with that too. And so it's, that's where my brain is at all the time. What are you not doing? Because that's what we need to start doing in order to get you moving better. For sure. I think Mike Boyle with running says, saying, you know, are, are you training to run or are you running to train? And right. oftentimes it's the running to train piece that can get you in, into problems, you know, right. versus if you're training to be able to move effectively, whereby running is one of those outcomes you're hoping to achieve, that usually has a far better outcome long-term. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so then I wanted to talk to you about salience because that's one of those chapters that you had in your book where it took me forever to get through that chapter because I would read a page and then contemplate and then write down notes and then read a page and then contemplate. And it took me forever to get through that chapter where I was just like, this is amazing. What an amazing concept that I've kind of been applying to my coaching practice, but not really because I haven't really been aware of it. Um, so let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so so salience, just to give everyone some context, it comes from <clears throat> the second chapter in my book, which is called Pay, Pay Attention. And so basically salience is a concept that relates to attention or focus. And so we'll, we'll start there. And so for, for someone who's interested in how to gain or improve their, their athlete or their client's focus and how focus impacts movement, then salience and the way your cues notably can encourage salience are, is of interest. And so just to kind of frame that, and you're right, you know, 
just to put a little footnote on that, the, the chapters in my book on attention and memory, albeit they're, they're delivered through stories and they try to simplify the concepts, there's no getting away that some of this stuff is, is new, is novel, funny enough, which is a part of salience to many in our industry. And we're trying to, or at least I'm trying to upgrade some of the vocabulary in the coaching industry to know what are the variables at play that I can manipulate in the way I communicate to get a better outcome. And I think salience most certainly is one of them. And so salience as a, for a definition, like really, really simple, is the primary thing that stands out in a given context. And that context relates to the, the literal context I find myself in. So a conversation is a context. A dinner party is a context. A sporting event is a context. So there's the physical circumstances. Then there's the literal external environment. So I have an external environment I'm in. We're both in offices. And Jesse, you have an external environment. And then obviously our internal. You know, so even in this discussion, let's say I had just gotten in a fight with my missus or had an amazing uh, bit of news before I got on this call. It likely would change my emotional state on the positive or negative, which also influences what I pick up in the environment. And so oftentimes, I think the best way to express salience is with the example of Where's Waldo. And so when you look at the cover of a Where's Waldo book, what's the thing that pops out above all else, right? It's the big picture of Where's Waldo. Right. And the book does that on purpose because they want his glasses, his red and white, you know, nightcap, and the other kind of oddities that is Where's Waldo. We want that to become prime, the most obvious thing, so that then when he shrinks down into these crazy vacations he goes on, we can start to search for him in the pages. And so almost think of this principle as, well, what's the, what's the Where's Waldo you want people to pick up in the given environment? And so salience is that piece within it. It's the most obvious one. So when I start to look at cueing itself, I want to make sure that the cue is encouraging or making the client or athlete aware of the most important feature of the movement they're looking to improve. And so let's say, for example, I'm working with someone on sprinting. And in sprinting, we oftentimes can bucket the kind of errors we see with athletes or clients, let's say from zero to 10 yards, and either they're not bringing their front leg forward enough, or they're not bringing their back leg back, extending enough. And so I still need to cue them to sprint. They still need to bring one leg forward and one leg back. But the question is, without putting too many ideas in their mind, and without giving them more than one cue, how can I make the front side mechanics be the driver of the whole motion or versus the backside mechanics to be the driver of the whole motion? And most certainly with our Olympic lifting examples, we could, we could apply this principle to those as well. And so a cue such as, I want you to drive your knee forward as if to break a pane of glass. Just let's unpack that for a second. One, by giving that cue, it's a very powerful visual. The, the visual that the language promotes is by its very nature 
salient. Uh, salience oftentimes is something that is novel, something that is interesting, something that is visual, something that is important. And so I would say that that analogy kind of checks the vast majority of those boxes. And so imagine now, if I tell you to drive any forward as if you were going to break a pane of glass, even though that highlights or makes the front side mechanics more obvious or more salient, still, it doesn't negate that the whole body needs to be involved in producing that motion. It's simply coming from that front leg being, if you would, the trigger that cascades everything else associated with running. Conversely, if I tell you, you're, you're in Arizona right now, I want you to explode off the ground, or I want you to explode away from the ground, like there's a rattlesnake tooth behind you about to strike your ankle. Right. Beat the bite, beat the bite, would right. kind of almost be narrative. Well, again, the trigger now, one, is that a salient cue? Yeah. And if you're in, I lived in Phoenix for 10 years. I tell you what, I would mountain bike. I was very aware of rattlesnakes all the time. So for me, especially if someone has a fear of snakes, that creates a powerful visual in my mind that is going to be difficult to forget, emotionally echoes through my body. But think about now the trigger is pushing, pushing away. I still need front side mechanics to bring the whole movement together. So it's not necessarily devaluing front side mechanics, but it's just highlighting the trigger, the most important feature of the movement that we, in our mind, know as a coach that they need to change. And so this is where, when it comes to what we're talking about here, external cues and analogies, people oftentimes say, well, Nick, if an external cue is just the outcome, are you just telling me that I have to tell people to run fast and jump high? And I think obviously you've read, you've read most of the book now. Oh, it, it's far more nuanced than that. What we're doing is we are, through our language, prioritizing the whole, but emphasizing a part. And so driving the knee forward to break the glass, <clears throat> the whole movement, but emphasizes front side. Explode off the ground to beat the bite, whole movement, but emphasizes the backside. And if you want that emphasis, final point here is almost like a Trojan horse. I'm hiding that technical cue inside of this visual analogy that if I move as if, it's going to force better extension or force better front side, but without me having to explicitly think, extend my hip, flex my hip, so on and so forth, which is the kind of language that can be, let's say, paralyzing if in too much quantity. Right. And so another thing that I'm hearing is that it gives them almost an emotional relationship to that cue so that they, it's easy for them to remember. And so once they have that emotional relationship to that cue and then they see how it improves their performance and then they feel how it perf uh, improves their performance, then they're less likely to forget it next time and they're going to notice the difference next time they're doing it. And so when they're starting to do that sprint, then they're like, oh my God, this doesn't feel right. What am I not doing? Yeah. Right. Which is like what, you know, my whole thing is, what are you not doing? And so then they're like, Oh, I'm not driving my knee through the pane of glass. Okay. So next, okay. That feels better. Right. And so it's, um, yeah. Nailed and it. so, you know, it's, it's, it's a tension 
right? So <clears throat> salience is essentially attention. And so then bringing that athlete's attention to what's actually going on, right? It's, it's making the important stuff obvious right? without overwhelming them. Right. And so it's, uh, you know, a big part of that and a big um, is, you know, when you start to, and I think you mentioned this in your book as well, why, why am I not performing well? And so that was a big thing in the CrossFit space, especially because the CrossFit is hyper-focused on constant improvement. And so one of the reasons why athletes get upset during CrossFit is because they're not making that constant improvement. So they think that they're failing as an athlete. And so it's my job as a coach to bring their awareness to why they're not doing well. Well, what did you do today? Well, I was at work and I had a terrible day. Okay. So did you eat lunch? No, I didn't eat lunch. I didn't have time because my boss was riding me. Okay. So that tells me two things. You're not fueled. Your boss stressed you out and you're not hydrated. So you're not going to do well and you can't expect to do well. And you probably should have taken the day off. You know what I mean? So then you start to give them this awareness of the, the whole picture as you alluded to with the where's Waldo thing, because they're just focused on Waldo. They're not looking at the whole entire beach of what's happening. And it's so a hundred percent. Right. And so, you know, everybody wants Waldo, but you're not going to find Waldo all the time. And so that's like one of those things that I really had to impart on people. Like your training cycle should be cyclical. You should go up and down. You're not going to be performing all the time. For sure. You know, you, you, you only get better in the segments of time when you stop training, right. you get worse in the moments that we are training. I think that's the whole principle of, as you're talking about their recovery oftentimes is missed and rightly so needs to be properly explained by a coach because you have these individuals that think that just because they went to the gym, they should immediately be able to cash that performance check the next day. But right. the reality is that check takes a week in the mail. <laughs> right. And, and so the Maybe some recovery in the meantime. <clears throat> and I feel like that's a constant battle that we have, right? Is trying to battle the societal narrative of what, you know, fitness and athletic performance really is. Because, you know, we have those CrossFit gyms, we have the the orange theories, we have all where, you know, intensity is the only thing that matters and constant improvement is the only thing that matters. You should always be able to lift heavier. You should always be able to do this and that. And you're like, no, it's not exactly how it works you know, because your, your training is breaking your body down and your rest is more important because that's when it recovers and gets stronger. And so just, and man, I have a, I have a long road to hoe speaking of uh, societal narratives as it pertains to massage therapy, you know, because as we know, nervous system is king, right? So, and so then we're dancing that fine line between threat and safety and so especially when somebody's on the table and they have you know chronically tight tissues like hypertonic tissues then you're just like okay why is this under threat where is this coming from how how are they moving because that's why it's under threat and this is so it's a threat response and so people come into me well i want deep tissue well, what does that mean that that's because that's not helpful I'm not, that's one thing that I learned almost immediately upon graduating massage school is I can't just dig my elbow into a tissue that's under threat because 
that's going to have an adverse effect and you're going to feel worse when you walk out of here. And so that's one of those things where I have to educate a lot of my newer clients when they come in is like, I'm not going to do deep tissue on you. That's just this thing that people think that they should say when they come in, you know? Yeah. And so it's a, it's, I don't know. Humans are weird. And I say that every podcast, every person I talk to. <laughs> we are. That's what, that's what makes us great and complex. And if this was easy, probably most of the people I know wouldn't be in it. It's the complexity of the human. <clears throat> it's right. the solving of puzzles. I find that most movement professionals like Legos. They, they like solving things and creating things. And I most certainly fall in that category. And I right. get it. And it's a, it's like a, and that's what makes our job so fun. And that's what makes me love my job so much is that, every time a person comes in, there's something else going on. So you have to, you, it's like, a, it's like, a, we're like investigators, we're athletic investigators. And we're just, okay, so what's going on here? Why is this working? You know, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? What, what's, you know, and sometimes just like, just people just make appointments with me just so they can dump off a lot of stress. And then they just feel like a million bucks. I'm like, okay, they just needed to yell at somebody without judgment and that just makes them feel so much better and so i'm sure you've seen that just throughout your career with all these professional athletes i think you know and maybe you can comment on this because i'm ignorant of this fact but like when you move from an amateur athlete to a professional athlete the stress increases substantially to perform right and so there is, yeah, I just don't even know where to go with that because I can't even imagine it. You know, it's like when somebody well, well, says, I can, yeah, I, I just, I can provide <clears throat> an immediate example comes to mind uh, as you flag that point. And so if you think of the, the average division one collegiate American football player, you know, and think of these, whatever big school that you want to use to populate your mind and this exper thought experiment with. The reality is many of these individuals, if needs be, someone will walk them to class. Someone might sit in class with them. They, they might get extra tutoring. And by no means am I trying to paint a picture that this is everyone. But ultimately, in the collegiate environment, these individuals are given whatever support that is, is required because they're in an institution that's meant to help them develop and learn. But sometimes it can cause, I don't want to say, you know, damage might be too strong of a word, but it might cause a delay. I should put it that way in the individual's development in that if they've never had to cook for themselves, if they've never had to maintain a schedule, if they've never had to balance a, a checkbook in their own account and just some of the lifestyle skills, what we find is when they get to the NFL, and in fairness, the NFL Players Association does an absolutely wonderful job of articulating the pitfalls, especially as a rookie, and hey, people are going to be coming at you for your money, you need to find a good money manager, don't overly invest in X, Y, and Z. So they try to give these individuals a strong platform. To, to enter into their career successfully. To your point, not adding ancillary stress where it doesn't need to be, but many of them still fall into those traps. And so you're right. The context, at least in American football, of college to, to pro can be this world where I was hyper-controlled, had minimal ownership to, hey, 
it's on you to show up on time. Otherwise, you're getting fined and everything's under your control. And we all know the stories around early retirements or individuals that were meant to be hopefuls but never made it. And some of it's physical, a lot of it's not. And I think in part, it comes down to the way they bridge the jump and the stress that comes along with it. That's so Humans are so weird. <laughs> just, it's, uh, we're just this, man, just. Why they call it the human condition. I know. It's just because <laughs> it's like one of those things where when somebody says, oh, I have $5 million, you're like, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like being a professional athlete is um, such a lofty goal. And I think, you know, I hate to get, uh, keep picking on CrossFit, but that's like the forefront of my mind is where people look at these athletes that are at the CrossFit games and are just like, I'm going to do that. Yeah. You're like, no, you're not going to do that. You know what I mean? Because you're starting CrossFit when you're like 25 or 30. Like these people were athletes their whole entire lives, not just right now, you know? And so trying, that was a big part of my coaching is, trying to keep them motivated and going in a direction and trying to, you know, not crush their dreams completely. You know what I mean? Like you can be an above average athlete. You can work really hard to get there. And so that was one of the lessons that I learned the hard way is, um, you know, I was training three to four hours a day and then one day realized that I'm training three to four hours a day to be top 20 at a local competition. And then I started thinking, well, what am I doing? You know, this doesn't make any sense. I'm just crushing myself and I'm one of the best in the gym. But then once I get into these local competitions where there's higher level athletes than me, where they transfer from above average to exceptional, then I'm just left in the dust, you know, and that's one of those, those, Thing, that's like the the hard pill to swallow right because then you get into those um overly exceptional athletes that are making it to like the sub competitions like regionals and that kind of thing but then you get to the elite competition and you're just like these people are on another level you know and so it's easy for people to understand with like baseball football all these sports that have been around for a really long time but then once you get into CrossFit where you're just, there's like this narrative built into the subculture just right from the get where we're forging elite fitness. Yeah. You're just not going to get there. And it's really hard as a coach to figure out that language where you, people still want to come and train every day, but they have to understand that they're, they still have a nine to five job. Like you're not going to make it. You're only training an hour a day because that's the only amount of time that you have because you have a life you know these these professional athletes don't that that is their life is training well you know i mean jesse i don't think when it comes to you know, what we're getting into now is is goal setting and, and how to help an individual craft attainable goals which i think is very important uh, at the end of the day you might have someone who even if you don't believe it's possible and likely on uh, solid evidence that they're not going to be able to make it, it, it doesn't, let's say, interfere necessarily with what you're trying to do. As long as you're there day in, day out, listening, supporting, uh, coaching them through the intention of them learning and owning those changes themselves, 
if that's what motivates them, if that's what they need to think to get in there, for me, more power to them. And yeah. if, they ask me, if they ask me questions like, you know, do you think I can be a professional one day? I might say things, well, here's the current level of a professional. Here's where we're at. We know that if we stick at this, we might be able to make these incremental gains, but everyone's going to be slightly different. So is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But if you're asking me, is it probable? Yeah, probably not. But hey, the reality is we got to keep putting one step in front of the other. So as long as you keep showing up every day, you're going to get better and you'll be better for it. And if it goes somewhere, fantastic. But if it doesn't, you are still doing something incredibly powerful for that one asset you have called the human body. And right. so I think there's a way to still be uh, genuine to you, but allow them to be genuine and authentic to themselves. Right. Because they're just in there becoming better at being human. And that's what Absolutely. our overall goal is. We're, we're improving the quality of their human condition. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right on. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, no, Jesse, my, my pleasure and best of luck. And I enjoyed the, the nuance and the, and the corners we peeked into. You're the first person to ask me about salience. So bravo. I think it's a very important concept. So I'm glad we got to riff on that for a few minutes. Absolutely. So before you go, let people know where they can find you, where they can buy your book and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, I'm, t I'm testing the waters with a website. So the language of coaching.com. I'm putting out a lot of, of free webinars and resources in and around the book and beyond around how we coach. Uh, if people want to reach out to me directly, it's info at the language of coaching.com. Otherwise I'm trying to put out sound bites and interesting call it stream of consciousness recommendations on how to be a better coach at Nick Winkleman on Twitter and Instagram and to buy the book. Amazon is carrying it. It's in stock as well as humankinetics.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk again soon.